Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 17. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and this episode is Hernando de Soto, part one. I'm recording this on April 14th, 2021, in a hotel bathroom in Key West, Florida. There's nothing I won't do to bring you the next episode of the History of the Americans podcast. Before we get to the exciting history part, I want to thank you for listening. We have listeners in every state of the Union, had multiple downloads in 17 foreign countries, and we clearly have regular listeners in India, the UK, Australia, Canada, Germany, and France at least. Total downloads and listens since early February when I launched this to my friends and so forth are almost 7,000, which is very gratifying. This is our 17th episode, not counting the introduction, and the audience seems to be growing all the time. So keep telling your friends all about the history of the Americans. Today we kick off the story of the first real invasion of the American South, Hernando de Soto's reconnaissance in force. The Spanish word, poorly pronounced as usual, is entrada, from 1539 to 1542. Last week's episode tied up various loose ends that brought us to this point, including that the correct shorthand for Hernando de Soto is actually Soto, not de Soto. That is how Soto referred to himself, and so we shall do here. Measured by money and glory, by the late 1530s, Hernando de Soto was at the very top of the second rank of Spanish conquistadors. Hernán Cortés had conquered the Aztecs, uncovering staggering wealth, and pushed his territory north and south. Francisco Pizarro had conquered the Incas of Cusco, and Soto enabled the conquest as Pizarro's most courageous and brilliant battlefield commander. Soto returned to Spain in the spring of 1536, just as Cabeza de Vaca resurfaced on the west coast of Mexico. After 22 years seeking and finding his fortune in the New World, Soto was now 36 years old. He had by that age gathered a significant pile of loot, to use the term literally for a change, from his adventures in South America, and no small amount of glory. People who weren't Soto and could not have achieved his astonishing victories in Central and South America would have called it quits and retired as one of the richest men in Europe's richest country. Soto was not that kind of man. He knew there was another Cusco or Tenochtitlan to be found and conquered, this time with Soto in command. Unfortunately for y'all, Soto's story in Central and South America is outside of the official mandate of the History of the Americans podcast. So I'm going to leave it to you as further reading. I don't know what the best biography of Soto might be, but I read David Ewing Duncan's Hernando de Soto, A Savage Quest in the Americas. It's very accessible and really brings home what a harsh dude Soto was. Soto was, in fact, an extremely smart and intuitive military tactician, wholly without fear or ruth. Soto's fearlessness was both his great asset and eventually, not surprisingly, his undoing. Soto was indeed looking for even greater wealth and glory. So when he arrived in Spain, he was looking for a patent, 
basically a monopoly license from the King of Spain, to look elsewhere in South America for his own lost city of gold. The royal council and Charles V had different ideas. Peter Martyr, the intellectual booster and propagandist for exploration in Spain, had touted the observations of the survivors of the failed Ayone expedition to the South Carolina coast in 1526. Regular listeners will remember the story of San Miguel de Gualdape and its many dubious firsts in North America. We covered all that in episode 11, Florida Man. With Ayone and his rival Panfilo de Nevais long and spectacularly dead, La Florida, the Spanish term for all the known or surmised territory of the continental United States, was, from the Spanish point of view, available. Soto got a patent to explore the region and establish up to three permanent settlements, of which more below. This would turn out to be very bad news for the Indians in the southern United States. Alvar Nunez Cabeza de Vaca, Soto's expeditionaries, and Soto himself, as we shall see in due course. Soto had beaten Cabeza de Vaca back to Spain, which meant that he got the old Narvaez patent instead of that great survivor and friend of the Indians. This was one of those hinge-of-fate moments. Cabeza de Vaca had been delayed in his return to Spain by perhaps six months because a gulf storm in the fall of 1536 capsized the ship he was about to board. He did not reach Spain until the spring of 1537, roughly as Charles V was granting Soto's patent. Had there been no storm and had Cabeza de Vaca arrived in Spain in the fall of 1536 as planned and had a chance to pitch the Royal Council on his much more humane vision of Indian governance, we might have cities, counties, and classic automobiles named Cow's Head or maybe just Vaca. At the very least, that would have made for a funnier America. Soto would go on to explore almost the entire American South from 1539 to 1542. He would achieve almost nothing, and he certainly never found another Indian civilization on the scale or accomplishment of the Aztecs or the Incas. Soto would, however, become very important in the American consciousness. This is a bit weird to me. There are 12 cities and counties named after him. And during the 1930s, Franklin Roosevelt would spend a chunk of what today we would call stimulus money on a federal commission to study Soto's expedition and its route. The DeSoto Expedition Commission, see, there again with a duh, published its final report in 1539, and the Smithsonian Institute reissued it in 1985. I bought a copy of the final report from a used bookseller, and it was marked as the former property of the Horace S. Sturgis Library of Kennesaw State College in Marietta, Georgia. It still had a little pocket in the back with stamps. It had never been checked out. And nearly as I can tell, I'm the first person to have read at least parts of this particular copy. I don't know who goes to Kennesaw State College, but I do know that for many years, not one of them was interested in Soto. The report itself is a very important contribution to the history of Soto's expedition, especially for archaeologists and ethnologists. There's no end of detailed analysis of his route and the controversies surrounding it. 
which I will not spend a lot of time on. The report also includes a weird list of FDR New Dealish government recommendations, including suggestions for anniversary celebrations and naming things like highways and bridges after Soto. I'll return to these recommendations at the end of his story, and you can form your own conclusions about whether or not they were worthy. To me, they show how radically our sensibilities about such things have changed, and that itself is interesting. There are four roughly contemporaneous accounts of Soto's expedition in the now United States, all of which are at some remove from the actual events. The four narratives are the backbone of the scholarship that has been done in the now 478 years since the remnants of Soto's army made it back to Mexico City in the spring of 1543. Understanding a bit about these accounts and their strengths and limitations will be useful, so I'll touch on them while sparing you the many ins and outs and what have yous. The first of these, published in 1557, was the true relation of the hardship suffered by Governor Fernando de Soto and certain Portuguese gentlemen during the discovery of the province of Florida, now newly set forth by a gentleman of Elvis. Sadly for all of us, Elvis is spelled E-L-V-A-S, and it is a town in eastern Portugal on the border with Spain. There were indeed a number of actual gentlemen from Elvis on the expedition, and several survived. We do not know who among the alternatives wrote the true relation. Historians often shorthand this account as Elvis, and so shall I. The next narrative of the expedition to appear was that of Garcilaso de la Vega. He was called the Inca because his mother was, supposedly, from the Peruvian royal family. The Inca's narrative is all hearsay insofar as he was not along for the ride and instead based it on interviews of multiple survivors of the expedition. It is also the longest and has a lot of detail. The third narrative to come to the attention of scholars is the shortest, and it's the only one of the four for which the original manuscript has been preserved. It seems to have entered Spanish archives as early as 1544 and was probably the official report of the expedition. When Luis Hernandez de Biedmo was the author, and his account is known, wait for it, wait for it, as Biedma. A bit disappointing after Elvis and the Inca, but there it is. The last of the four primary sources is from Soto's private secretary, Rodrigo Rangel. Rangel kept a diary in which he wrote almost every day. The original manuscript is lost, but according to the De Soto Expedition Commission, all of the substance of it, except the concluding chapters, is preserved in the general history of the 16th century Spanish historian and propagandist of exploration, Oviedo. We have mentioned Oviedo before and probably will again. His preservation of the main part of the Rangel Journal did not become known until 1851, however, so Rangel's was the last of the four accounts to surface. These narratives are deeply interesting to Soto scholars for a bunch of reasons, three of which loom large, at least nearly as I can tell. First, the reconciliation of similarities and differences between the four narratives bolsters or weakens the certainty with which we know particular facts about the Soto expedition. The final report of the DeSoto Expedition Commission, I just love saying that, 
has extensive tables that compare and contrast the narratives on particular points. Second, they each contain clues as to the precise route of the Soto expedition, about which there has been much arcane and in some cases downright nasty scholarly argument. Finally, scholars who study Indian societies in North America have tapped into the Soto narratives for their description of natives before they were devastated by Eastern Hemisphere diseases. Soto's men were in many cases the only Europeans to have witnessed these societies when they were intact and thriving. And it should be said, in some cases, Soto's men were responsible for making them less intact and thriving. Well then, back to the story. On April 20th, 1537, 484 years ago, the Tuesday after this episode drops, the King of Spain issued the first of three documents giving Soto permission to invade La Florida, far from his original request to explore South America and the South Sea. As long-standing listeners know, La Florida wasn't merely today's Florida, but in fact all of the known continent of North America, which Spain and the Pope had regarded as Spain's to exploit. Soto's forthcoming invasion would be the fourth attempt to establish a settlement in what is now the southern United States. Ponce de Leon, Lucas Vasquez de Ayon, and Panfilo de Narvaez had all failed spectacularly before him. The spin following these expeditions, particularly Peter Martyr's hot take on the stories told by the Ayon survivors, induced the crown to send Soto back to La Florida. If anyone could tame Florida man, council must have reasoned, it would be Soto. The document clearly reserves for Soto the lands originally bestowed on Narvaez and Aeon, which nails the historical connection between these expeditions and Soto's. Soto was to take a minimum of 500 men, including priests for the instruction of the natives of that province in our holy Catholic faith, and all the necessary horses, armaments, and provisions to support such a large invasion. Soto was given the right to designate 600 miles of coastline that he would govern for all his days, an annual salary of 2,000 ducats, which was not chump change, and a land grant of 12 square leagues, some 100 square miles, of his choosing for him and his heirs. He was also given the governorship of Cuba, which, it was understood, he would drain of resources in order to support the Entrada. Finally, Soto was to build three stone fortresses in the harbors and places most appropriate for them, for the purpose of interdicting pirates. Since one big risk of piracy was along Florida's Atlantic coast, it is probable that the Crown had it in mind that at least one of the fortresses would be there, perhaps near the site of San Miguel de Gualdape. As it happened, Soto not only would fail to build a single stone fortress, he would not even go to the Atlantic coast to scout a location for one. For Soto nerds, and believe me, there have been many, the details of the preparations for his expedition are themselves interesting. In the service of hastening on to the future United States, we will skip over them but for his meeting with Cabeza de Vaca, about whom we learn much over four episodes, which I recommend if you've not already listened to them. 
At some point in the fall of 1537, Soto heard that Cabeza de Vaca was back in Spain, and he invited that consummate survivor to his mansion in Seville. Cabeza de Vaca accepted the invitation, and Soto and his senior officers debriefed him over several days. Here we cannot do better than quote Soto's biographer, David Ewing Duncan. Patiently, Cabeza de Vaca answered Soto's eager questions about topography, climate, available food, and the disposition of the Indians. At some point, he may have given Soto a copy of his narrative, which he published in 1542. The Cabeza de Vaca remained tight-lipped and even contradictory about what most mattered to the would-be conquerors of Florida, the existence of wealth and great kingdoms. In general, writes Elvis, Cabeza de Vaca described the wretchedness of the land and the hardships he had suffered. However, when several of his own kinsmen, including two important captains in the La Florida Entrada, Baltasar de Gallego and Cristobal de Espindola, urged him to tell them whether he had seen any rich land in Florida, Cabeza de Vaca suggested that they sell their property and join the expedition. For in doing so, he said, they would act wisely. Soto and his men interpreted Cabeza de Vaca's reticence to mean he was hiding some great secret of untold wealth, which naturally redoubled everyone's belief that Florida, quote, was the richest land in the world. What we've got here is failure to communicate. It so stoked the imagination of young recruits that when Soto later departed Spain for La Florida, his problem was not the usual dilemma of having too few men, but too many. Many men of good condition, says Alvis, who had sold their estates, remained behind in Spain because there was no ship for them. For a time, it looked as if Cabeza de Vaca would join Soto in the expedition to La Florida. Though Elvis says the agreement soon fell apart as Cabeza de Vaca balked at serving under the banner of another. Soto, too, must have had second thoughts about a potential subordinate so independent-minded, particularly one whose ideas about how to treat the Indians were so at odds with his own. As we shall see, this was all just as well. Cabeza de Vaca would have been horrified to witness what Soto would eventually do. At any rate... After six months or more of further preparations, recruitment of men, acquisitions of ships and stores, in the spring of 1538, Soto's expedition set sail for Cuba, where Soto was the new governor, arriving in June. There, Soto spent most of the next year establishing himself, buying plantations, and essentially stripping the island's fairly small population of horses, pigs, and other supplies needed to support a 600-man expedition to Cuba. Cuba was the warehouse, if you will, that would provision Soto's invasion of North America. Of course, this did not make the Cubans happy in the least, but there was nothing they could do about it. At some point in late 1538, Soto sent one of his more inventive deputies, Juan de Nasco, to explore the coast of Florida and determine the best place to land. Agnasco was, per David Duncan, an accomplished geographer and navigator and well-equipped for the mission. He followed Ponce de Leon's route, intentionally or otherwise, passing between Key West, 
where it so happens I wrote this episode and I'm now recording it, and the Dry Tortugas. And Yasko scouted the west coast of Florida and settled on either Tampa Bay or Charlotte Harbor, with perhaps a majority of scholars favoring the former. He also grabbed four Indians who, quote, by signs, reported to Soto, per Elvis, that much gold existed in Florida. Uh-oh, remember the maxim, never get between a 16th century conquistador and gold. Then again, gold made great bait. Of course, there was no gold, and it would be centuries before any was discovered in the territory that Soto was to explore. Soto believed these Indians for two reasons. First, a guy like Soto hears what he wants to hear. We saw that with his interview with Cabeza de Vaca, and we will see it again. Second, the Indians of Florida had long since learned that duping the Spanish into pursuing non-existent gold was a great tactic, because the Spanish would do lots of militarily stupid things to get it. They had done it to both Ponce de Leon and Panfilo de Narvaez, and there was no reason to believe it would not work again. In mid-May 1539, in David Duncan's words, Hernando de Soto signed his final will and testament and a power of attorney for his wife, Isabel. On May 18th, the Adelantado, that was his title, set sail from Havana, leaving behind forever the settled world of the Spanish Empire and headed once again for an unexplored territory where he was convinced he would find a golden empire greater than any yet discovered. Duncan's description of the landfall is evocative, and yet I'm not sure I agree with its framing. Quote, Soto's splendid company first saw the shoreline of La Florida as a thin, gauzy line on May 25, 1539. As the fleet drew near, it slowly grew into a thicket of green palms and shrubbery, the edge of a vast continent from which most of Soto's men would not return. This included the dark, imposing figure probably pacing the high poop of the flagship San Cristobal, his eyes blazing with anticipation and a lust to plunge in and see what was beyond the coastal thickets. By now, this ritual of arrival at the precipice of the unknown was second nature to Hernando de Soto. But for most of the uneducated medieval peasants he was leading, just dimly aware of what they were facing, the sight of that narrow band of green abruptly shifted this place of giddy rumors and bold prediction to something real, tangible, and for some, terrifying. Close quote. Duncan, it seems to me, captures Soto fairly well. One can position it as lust, and in Soto it surely was. But there was something more. It is hard for we moderns to grasp how exciting it must have been to see a totally new place. This would be a thing that even many of us, risk-averse as we are in our secularism, would want to do. If warp drive were invented tomorrow and entrepreneurs were organizing expeditions to Class M planets, to use the Star Trek classification, does anybody doubt that there would not be a great many volunteers to go explore? Well, the caravel was the warp drive of the late Middle Ages. 
The urge to explore only seems antiquated to us. My suspicion is that it runs deep and would emerge again if there were new places to see, as it did with Europeans after 1492. As for the terrified medieval peasants, I'm not so sure Duncan has imagined them correctly. I am no medievalist, only the son of one, but I do know that it is very difficult for us to conceive of the danger and drudgery in ordinary life in the early 16th century, balanced against the genuine belief in the inevitability of death and redemption in the afterlife. This was the possibility not just of riches and adventure, but of meaning. And if it were to involve dying young, then so be it. They had all seen plenty of dying young, every day in their own families. God would be waiting for them. No, I'm not so sure that medieval peasants were filled with fear and trepidation. This seems like a good place to stop today. Thank you again for listening, and please look up our Facebook page, the History of the Americans podcast, or follow us in your podcatcher of choice. If you like what you hear, we would rejoice in a robust rating on Apple or Stitcher. And if you know people who want history to be fun and interesting, tell your friends. <laughs>